These are young people who study in our schools, they play in our neighborhoods, they pledge allegiance to our flag. They are Americans in every single way but one, on paper. No one asked me, hey, do you want to be smuggled? Like, nobody said this, nobody said this to me. I will immediately terminate President Obama's illegal executive order on immigration. And the ICE officers practically said to us, the reason why they came after me was because I was an activist, and they said, you need to shut up. There is no way for them to get a green card. There is no way for them to become a U.S. citizen. That's why DACA is such an important policy for them. The story of DACA shows the benefit this country will have when you allow people to be their free, full selves. This is The Pursuit. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. Can you remember when you were preparing to get your driver's license? Or maybe when you were assessing your options for college? Now imagine in this frantic time that you were told you were undocumented, that you didn't belong here. Hi. Do I say hi? Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Hi, my name is Ewalua Ogandana. I'm a student at Trinity Washington University. I'm from Lagos, Nigeria, and I came to the U.S. when I was five, so in 2004, and I haven't been back ever since. Iwa is undocumented, and her parents didn't tell her until she was a teenager. They hid it from me. I kind of had to, like, figure it out on my own. I knew we weren't citizens. Like, Mm -hmm. I knew that. Um, My dad made that clear. Um, But I didn't know that being undocumented meant I couldn't work. I didn't have a Social Security card. I didn't know it meant that I wouldn't be able to, like, apply to scholarships as easily as my peers. The actual barriers of it, I I had an experience. So until I did, that's when it fully like, oh, so you're really, really undocumented. With them hiding it, I had to like learn the process. So I went through grade school, middle school, and most of high school not really realizing what it meant to be undocumented. This is Christian Aguirre. He's also a college student. Until I took a course. At that point, the state of Illinois used to require that all the students in high school um, take a driver's ed course. And so I went through all of that. And then at the very end of the course, that's when everybody gets really excited and is able to apply um, for a driver's license. However, I wasn't able to do that at the end of the course, even though I got an A+. And this is Nelsie Rocha, a student who immigrated from Bolivia when she was just two years old. My parents didn't really tell me what my status was. They just mm-hmm. kept it really quiet so I don't have to worry about anything. But um soon as like I got in college I learned what it is. So I it made me like realize how much my parents have been hiding something from me. Mm-hmm. But also I appreciated them because um I was able to live like a normal life kind of every immigrant we talked to knew that their parents made the most challenging decision of their lives to uproot their families for a chance to live in America. Some of them are still grappling with why their parents decided to move in the first place. I am from the outskirts of Guadalajara, Mexico. I came to the United States when I was eight years old, and most of my life I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Originally, I thought I was coming on vacation, so I remember it was a summer, and so we came and I thought that, you know, I was going to get to see Disneyland and, you know, all those touristy places. 
However, we ended up settling here. And so um, I just remember not really saying goodbye to any of my family members, any of my friends, because I thought that I would be coming back. There are about 11 million undocumented immigrants residing in the United States. Of course, this is a guess because there is no way to know the exact number of people who have entered our country without the correct paperwork. I was born in Mexico, in Lagos de Moreno, Jalisco. It's a small town in the state of Jalisco, not too far away from the major capital city of Guadalajara. And this is Kevin Ortiz. And uh, when I was five years old, it's when my father actually migrated to the United States. My father, he he was really struggling. We're looking around 1995, 1990, uh, 1996, and in Mexico at that particular moment, the the economy is is in a downturn. There's a lot of a lot of jobs are disappearing, and it's just tough to find good employment. And at the moment, he had three kids and a wife that he was trying to try his best to take care of. So. Uh, he knew that there were opportunities, you know, El Norte, the Great North, was always the next horizon, and it was an opportunity to to truly, to truly provide a better, you know, way of life. Kevin spent seven years in Mexico, separated from his father, who moved to the United States before the rest of the family followed suit. And it wasn't until I was about 12 years old when I migrated along with the rest of my family to the United States to really meet up with my father again. The whole purpose of that journey, of that decision, was to bring the family together, my mom, my dad, and my siblings. Seven years without a father was challenging for Kevin and his family. But when he was 12 years old, the time to journey to El Norte finally arrived. So I remember giving my grandma a big hug and just walking out of her house. And my mom stayed for a little longer. I kind of, me and my sister and my brothers, we started the walk over to the bus station where the big bus was to take us to to the La Frontera. Uh, um, that was very, I, I can only imagine how tough that was for my mom to say goodbye to her own mother. And I remember my, my other grandmother, Carmela, and my, my, my grandfather being there as well, waving us goodbye as we were starting on this journey. We probably just were on the bus for a full day, all the way from Jalisco to at um, the border with Arizona, I think it's with Chihuahua. And we probably spent a night in the border before uh, getting ready to, to start the journey, which was crossing the desert uh, between Mexico and, uh, and the state of Arizona. The journey was anything but easy for Kevin and his family. We ended up having to spend another full day and full night in the desert, walking the rest of the way. And, you know, we at that moment, we don't have enough rations for that. We planned for one day trip. We were, we're told to buy enough water and enough tuna and bread to survive one day. And, and I remember that we had to really be strategic and ration what we had. It was the second night. I was just exhausted. I never felt so tired and I never wanted to stop and sit down and sleep more than ever. I was ready to give up and quit. One moment we were just walking, someone heard something. And I mean, I, we probably sat down for 10 seconds uh, within those moments. And that is all I needed to just get a little rest and continue.
The struggle was far from over for Kevin and his family, even though the journey across the desert was now a memory. It's a little tough for me because even for some years, I feel like I blocked that memory out of my brain. I wouldn't think about it. It was very tough. And I guess a way of dealing and coping with it was just to forget and not to think about it. Uh, however, recently, over the past three, four years, that memory has returned and I embrace it a lot more. You know, I'm proud of the fact that we went on such an incredible, dangerous journey. And I'm so proud and so honored to call my mother my mother because she took us on that journey, right? She, she found the courage to do it. She understood her purpose. She knew the why. And, and I always remember that big saying by Victor Franklin, which is, if you know your why, you can endure anyhow. And our purpose was to bring the family together, and it didn't matter how we were going to do it. When Kevin arrived in the U.S., he was fully aware that he did not have the correct papers to reside here permanently. Immigrants risk it all to come to America. They face more barriers than we can count. This is Alex Narasta, Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Basically, immigration law is so complex, so convoluted, so full of weird exceptions and not well thought out. Like the central planner who designed it. Just kidding. There is no central planner. <laughs> um, the person, the people who like thought about how all these pieces fit together didn't do a very good job. So there are tons of executive actions, tons of memos, tons of just things that they've done a certain way that's not spelled out in statute or in regulation even or even in memo that is just sort of accepted as the way to do things now uh, because they've been done so long. People like Iwa, Christian, Kevin, and over 700,000 other undocumented residents knew this all too well. Since as early as 2001, people in their situation have been known as dreamers, not just because of their dreams for a life in America, but also because of a possible legislative fix to their situation, the Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, or the DREAM Act. When it was most recently proposed to Congress in 2011, it had widespread public support, but was still struck down. However, the Obama administration decided to bypass Congress altogether and instituted the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. It was an executive action that basically took off the table a large number of dreamers, people who were brought here as young children who were unlawful immigrants from deportation. They had to fulfill several requirements, so they had to have entered um, at a certain, uh, past a certain point, a certain age and date. They had to not have any criminal convictions, certain amount of education. Uh, they could be in the military, etc. And it basically, if they applied for for DACA status, then they got a work permit that lasts two years, and they're allowed to stay in the United States and really couldn't be deported unless they committed a crime. It's important to note that DREAMers are not granted citizenship, temporary protected status, or given green cards under the program, but once accepted, are also not considered undocumented unless their status is not renewed. Uh, there is no way for them to get a green card. There is no way for them to become a U.S. citizen. That's why DACA is such an important policy for them. So I learned about DACA through my dad, actually, and he learned about it through his friend. Oh, wow. um, and I got DACA in 2015. Um, 
I just always remember, I think it was like ninth grade, 10th grade, um, he was always saying, oh, um, Obama passed this policy and I think you can benefit from it. Um, you have to look into it. But I, I really had no clue what it was. I didn't know how it would help me. At that time, I didn't really fully understand what being undocumented actually even meant because I wasn't applying to anything um, at that time. So it was once his friend like told him about it and then when I was of age, I think 15, um, I sent my application. I remember my mom driving me to Baltimore to the USCIS to go through um, the application process, submit the application, do my fingerprinting, all those things. Being un- unauthorized or undocumented in the United States really is like being, you know, they, they call it a golden cage. You're able to see the beauty and able to experience things, but you are in a cage. This is Gabby Pacheco, Program Director for the Dream.us, a national scholarship program for dreamers looking to pursue a college education in America. She also came to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant from Ecuador at the age of eight. So my dad um, and my mom actually were uh, business owners, and they it wasn't like they were poor. They actually had um, resources, and um, we had a pretty good life in Ecuador. But they used to frequent the United States. And one time my dad saw a group of elementary school children walking alone (laughs) from, um, I guess, their house to school. And he thought, oh, my gosh, like that would never happen, you know, in our home country. And I want that level of safety and freedom for my children. Gabby came to the U.S. in 1993 when she was eight years old. Unlike many undocumented families, Gabby's family came to the U.S. as prepared as possible even with social security numbers. She was aware that something was wrong with her paperwork because her family was never able to secure a religious visa, which was their intention when they moved. As she grew up in the United States, she became more vocal and determined for society to understand the plight of living undocumented in America. She embarked on a four-month-long walk from Miami to D.C., She was the first undocumented Latina to testify in front of Congress, and she was recently recognized as one of Forbes 40 under 40 Latinos in American politics. In 2006, ICE actually came and raided our home, detained my parents and my sisters. And the ICE, you know, officers, the the ones that were leading, um, practically said to us, the reason why they came after me was because I was an activist. And they said, you know, you need to shut up kind of thing. As a person that believes that I'm an American um, and that I hold true the values, I was like, what? Like, no, you're going against like the most important, you know, First Amendment, right? Like, no, Um, I'm going to keep speaking up. DACA recipients don't have the ability to become full-fledged citizens, so they try to get the most experience out of their two-year permit. In most cases... It means that they are not only attending classes full-time, but also working to financially support their entire family. DACA recipients can enroll in university classes, but in most states they are not eligible for in-state tuition. There are very few scholarship opportunities for these students. This is Oscar Hernandez. Even with DACA, I remember I got a little, like my senior year of high school, everybody was applying to different colleges. I remember just being intimidated because, like, just looking at the tuition, even at in-state tuition, like... As someone who came from like just a background where, you know, money was always kind of tied and, you know, we we always had to worry about that kind of stuff. I remember looking at tuition prices and just asking myself, like, how, how does anybody afford these kind of things? Like, how how is it that like college is so expensive? 
Nelsie Rocha was also unsure of how she would afford her college classes, but the opportunity to earn a degree was something her family had wanted since she arrived as a child, and she was going to find a way to make her dream a reality. It was on the weekend. It was on Friday. Yeah. So I just finished helping my mom clean the house, and then I was just laying in bed, just on my Instagram, just looking through my feed. Then I got that email from the Dream.us. I'm like, oh, what is this? And I clicked on it. It's a congratulations. Just reading that, I was like, mom. <laughs> I was screaming. I was like crying. I was like, she's like, ¿Qué pasó? ¿Qué pasó? I was like, I got the scholarship. She's like, what? What scholarship? I'm like, scholarship that pays for almost everything. And she's like, no, no, no te creo, no te creo. I was like, yes, <laughs> it, it's true. Like, read the email. And she's like, yeah, I can't read this in English. <laughs> I was like, like reading it to her and like translating. And I'm like, oh, see, I got the scholarship. Like, I'm part of the Dream.us um, community now. And she's like, no, oh my gosh. She's like, we were crying. And yeah. We prayed. Um, and then I called my dad. It was like screaming. And my dad thought I was in an accident, a car accident. Oh. He's like, what happened? <laughs> and then I was like, no. And I, I explained everything. He's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And he's like, I'm going to leave work early. And we're going to go eat somewhere out and celebrate for this. And I was like, okay, yay. And then we went to Olive Garden and we celebrated. <laughs> it was, oh my God, I just couldn't believe it. The next day I was like, reading it again, I'm like, no, I don't think so. Like, is it a mistake? I just couldn't believe it. When DACA was first announced, I believe the price used to be um, almost $500. Um, at this point, it's gone up. Um, but I remember back then when I was, you know, only you know, not even 18 years old. I remember it was very hard to come come up with that money, especially because I didn't have a job. And so, you know, after having DACA now, the renewal process has gone, became easier because obviously now I'm able to have a job and save up. And so every two years, I know that that fee's coming up. Mm -hmm. And so I started to save up. The process of renewing this is something that is in the back of their minds. And instead of focusing on their studies, they're focusing on when I get home, is my mom gonna be there still? When I go home, is my brother gonna make it home? Is my sister gonna make it home? Am I gonna be here tomorrow to continue to work and provide for my family? I think when we talk about DACA recipients, we focus a lot on just the people who have DACA, but I think it's I mean, I'm always thinking about my parents because I wouldn't be here and be where I am if it weren't for them. Society is quick to blame the parents of dreamers because they didn't have the ability to make the life-altering decision of coming to America legally on their own. Dreamers are particularly grateful for the tough decisions their parents made on their behalf. They view the opportunity of living in America as priceless, and they are not sure how they will ever repay their parents for the incredible sacrifices they have made. They're not guilty of anything. All they did was provide for their family. And so they are the original dreamers. They are the ones who sacrificed everything and anything to give me and my siblings a better chance. And so it burns me every time I hear people say, these kids came here with no fault of their own, which means that the fault is in their parents. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, my parents are brave individuals. They're heroes. Uh, they, they, they sacrifice more than anyone who would ever criticize them could ever sacrifice. However, dreamers hesitate talking about their relatives because of the fear of exposing their families as undocumented. This is Jose Antonio Vargas, an author and filmmaker. He was born in the Philippines and came to America at the age of 12 to live with his grandparents. 
He revealed himself as undocumented in the New York Times in 2011 and has yet to be contacted by the United States government. He's feared deportation for nine years. I, I, I can't tell people. I can't talk about this. You know, I'm going to, you know, basically, I, I can never really reveal too much of myself to people. So when people ask questions like, hey, where's your mom? Right? Pretty early on in life, I've started, I learned not to talk about her. Not to, like, talk about, you know, at one point, I even started saying that she was dead, which is awful, right? And you don't, you don't put pictures up because when you put pictures up, people ask questions. However, our community is resilient. Our community, we are resilient. We, we find ways to make lemonade with lemons uh, based on whatever we are faced. And I am just in shock of how much we make from scratch. For good reason, America has been dubbed the land of opportunity. DACA has given that opportunity to many young immigrants. So DACA really has opened up the doors um, because when I was about to graduate from high school, I didn't think I could go to a four-year school. I didn't know that I could apply for scholarships. I didn't know, I didn't think that any of that was possible without a social security number. So DACA gave me that confidence that I'd be able to apply for colleges and scholarships. When I think about DACA, I think about, you know, this whole idea that people have of make the line. Why don't they just get legal? Well, if there was a way to make the line and if there was a way to make yourself legal, people would do it. And DACA showed that, right? Um, close to a million people made huge lines <laughs> um, and have been paying, you know, huge fees uh, to be able to have what is practically just a work authorization card and a promise that um, for two years, you know, you'll have a deferral of deportation and that's it, right? Like DACA didn't give anything else but that. And so, um, you know, I, I feel like for us, right, as, as undocumented people, as, as people that are immigrants in this country, um, our stories as dreamers, but also the story of DACA shows the benefit that this country will have when you allow people um, to be their free, full selves. So a lot of a lot of folks, like, like you asked me, a lot of folks are going to college. A lot of DACA folks are starting their own businesses. A lot of folks are hiring U.S. citizens. Think about it that way. A lot of DACA folks are hiring U.S. citizens and giving them jobs. So when we talk about removing this this uh, DACA and how the current administration is talking about this, that is the big impact here. You will, it's not just about the 700,000 DACA folks. It's about the millions of U.S. citizens and permanent residents who will be affected by the possible removal of these 700,000 individuals. In 2017, the Trump administration decided to end the DACA program. This move was argued in front of the United States Supreme Court in November of 2019, after the lower courts tried to block Trump's actions. No decision has been reached yet, which has left every DACA recipient on the edge of their seat. Next time on The Pursuit, dreamers get a wake-up call. Thanks for listening to The Pursuit. If you like The Pursuit, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Pursuit is a project of libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. Music by Cellophane Sam. If you'd like to learn about libertarianism, visit us at libertarianism.org.